0: The scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Hebrews 2, if you are using the black Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 1921. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Please stand in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word, Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray
1: for us once more. Father, we come before you now asking for you to bring your peace. Bring your peace upon us as we hear your word preached. May we have a a deeper understanding of this text and may it generate within us a deeper love for the Son of God, the one who came down to take on flesh, to become man, to come into our world, to be with us, to bring God to us. May we have a deeper love for Jesus. May we fall back in love with him through the gospel. May you do this work in us now, I pray, by the power of your spirit and for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I think all of us are well familiar with the Christmas story. We know about the angel appearing to the virgin, proclaiming that she will conceive a son. We know about her journey to Bethlehem with her fiancé Joseph and how there was no room for them in the inn. We know about the angels who appeared to the shepherds out in the fields of Bethlehem, about how the heavenly host proclaimed to them that on this day a Savior has been born in the city of David, we know also about the wise men coming from the east who arrive most likely months later, not the same night, coming to bear gifts fit for a king. We know these stories. This is the Christmas story that we're all very familiar with. And at the heart of it all is this miracle that's called the, the, the incarnation. The incarnation, that, that word literally, incarnation, Means to put on meat. You, I think you're, you're more familiar with this term than you realize. If you go out to, you know, to a restaurant for some Tex-Mex and you order chili, you know you have the option of getting it plain or getting chili con carne, chili with meat. And so when we speak of the incarnation, we're basically talking about God putting on meat God taking on flesh, God becoming man. And I know it's a bold claim. Modern day people are going to be quick to chalk it up as a nice but just fanciful story. It's great, you know, for kids, for Christmas TV specials, Christmas plays, Christmas decorations, but it's considered as real and as historical as as Santa and all his elves living up in the North Pole. The typical assumption is, is that it was believable back then that for pre-modern people, they were just primed to believe these kinds of stories, which would explain why the Christmas story is pervasive in so many cultures and why it has had such a long-lasting influence over the centuries. But now, now we live in the 21st century as modern people. We know better than to believe these things to be true and historical But I think that's a false assumption. That is a false assumption about pre-modern people. Just take take the ancient Greeks, for example, the very Gentiles to whom the apostles were sent to to proclaim this very Christmas story. The Greeks... They, 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 they certainly had a conception of, of God's appearing to us in human form. There are plenty of stories, if you read the mythologies, about Zeus or Apollos slipping into a human body, much like you would an outfit, much like you would put on a, a costume. That happens all the time. But they are never said in those stories to have actually taken on flesh, to have actually become human You see, the Greeks, that would have been an absurd concept. Greeks had a very dualistic worldview where the material world, where where matter itself, that that includes the human body, it was considered to be defiled. It was considered undesirable. And so, so in their conception, what salvation is all about, salvation involves an escape from the body. Salvation, what they hoped for was to be able to free themselves from from this from this shell that's imprisoning the real me, which is my soul. And so they couldn't fathom why God would choose to actually become a material being, why he would choose to actually take on a human body, the very thing they're trying to get to take off. So it's absurd to the Gentile worldview. And as for the Jews, it would have been just as difficult to convince them that God became man. Of course, they were expecting God to send the Messiah, but they were not expecting an incarnation. The Jewish worldview stressed the transcendence of the Lord God. So there was this very sharp line drawn between the Creator and the rest of us, all of creation, And so to speak of a union of the two, of creator and creation, that would have been considered by Jews to be simply blasphemous. They could not accept that. And so my my point is, if you as a 21st century person have a hard time believing in the incarnation, just know that you're not alone. That first century Jews and Gentiles were were in the same boat And so if Christmas is simply just this fanciful legend, just this tall tale we've been telling over and over again over the centuries, if it's just a story concocted by the early church in order to convince people that Jesus is more than just a man, then I'd say the first Christians did a very bad job at it. They don't know how to tell a convincing story. That is, of course, if they were just trying To tell and sell a convincing story but what if they were telling the truth what if they were just recounting what 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 they personally witnessed what they saw what they heard i I think the fact that the christmas story has so many unbelievable elements in it actually supports its claim to be true because no one in their right mind whether ancient or modern would include An incarnation within the story if they're trying to convince others to believe it to be true unless it actually happened the early Christians were consistent in affirming the historical truthfulness of the Christmas story you know one biblical author the writer of Hebrews claims that it only makes sense that God would become a man He feels no need to apologize for the strangeness of the incarnation. In fact, he says in chapter 2 of his his letter, chapter 2, verse 10, that it was only fitting, it was fitting for the Son of God to become a man like us. It was only fitting that he would become a brother from the same line, sharing in the same ancestry as the rest of the human race. And so while I believe the mystery and the absurdity of the incarnation does strengthen our belief that it's true, at the same time, I also believe that our passage gives us good fitting reasons for why the incarnation happened the way it did, why the incarnation makes perfect sense. I see three reasons from our text as to why it was fitting for God to become a man, and those three things are found in an outline in your bulletin, and I'm going to go cover them um, uh, in order. First, it was fitting for God to become a man to suffer as our brother, second, to die as our deliverer, and third, to serve as our high priest. Those are three things I see here in the text. So let's look at the first reason. The first reason the Son of God became a man was to suffer as our brother. We have all sorts of names and titles that we use to address Jesus. If I were to ask you, how do you see Jesus right now? I think it would be fitting for you to think of Lord, Master, Savior, Redeemer, Friend. But what about brother? I I don't think that's as common. I, I doubt many of you immediately thought of brother. But our passage says that that is a very fitting Description in chapter one, which we looked at last week, the author of Hebrews made a strong case for why Jesus is is much more superior than the angels of God. He quotes n- a, a numerous Old Testament texts supporting this case, proving that the Son of God is is better, much better than any messenger sent from God before or after Him. Because it says He's the heir of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, He's the exact imprint of his nature. He he sits at the right hand of God on a throne, holding the scepter of his kingdom. He's reigning forever and ever. He is that much better. Now, in case you're starting to picture the Son of God as as some kind of otherworldly, transcendent being, even more unlike us than than even the angels— Well, in chapter 2, it quickly reminds us that the Son of God became a man. He became a brother, our brother. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. It says Jesus is not ashamed to call his followers brothers. Now, ladies, ladies, uh, p- please don't be put off by this, this, uh, this use of, of, of gender-specific language. I know when you read that, it may feel awkward to see yourself as Jesus' brother, about as awkward as it is for me to see myself as Jesus' bride. You you, you just have to get used to this when you're reading the scriptures. You have to get used to these corporate metaphors that you're going to find in the scriptures. Otherwise, if you you just react and reject this type of language, you're going to miss out on rich spiritual truths that these metaphors are trying to communicate. It's saying that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ, if you have been born again by the Spirit, then you are a member of the bride of Christ and a member of the brotherhood of Christ. The underlying message is you're part of a family now. You and Christ are family. Look back at verse 11. Look how it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified... All have one source. So he who sanctifies, that's referring to Christ. Those who are sanctified, those are Christians. We have one source. Now, the source there could be referring to God. um, But then again, God's the source of everything. God's the source of angels. God's the source of all the animals. But this passage is trying to stress that, that very unique bond that we share with Christ. And so the one source, I think, is more likely referring to Adam, and not to God in particular, it's to Adam. We share a common source, a common ancestry with Christ in Adam. We are all descendants of the same man, of the same family, and that's what makes us brothers with Jesus. He's our elder brother. Now, the significance of this, this idea that Jesus is your elder brother, that's going to be lost on you unless unless you trace out the biblical theme of elder brothers that you find in the Old Testament. If you think about it, brothers were horrible to each other in the Old Testament, especially elder brothers. I I think of, of Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob, the ten brothers and Joseph. In each case, in each case, the elder brother was suspicious the elder brother was jealous of his younger brother he, he, he made his brother suffer he even tried to take his brother's life Cain actually succeeded in doing that elder brothers are the worst and I say that as, as, as a younger brother <laughs> but and you go into the to the New Testament you go to the New Testament, and, and the most w- well-known elder brother is the, the one in the parable of the prodigal son. And there again, he's depicted as being jealous, being suspicious. The Bible has this running theme of elder brothers who are always putting themselves first, thinking about them and, th- and, and, and their desires, and who just want to see you suffer. That's what you see in the pages of Scripture. And so... When you finally get to the Gospels, when you get to the Gospels, then you realize what makes Jesus so much better, how he is the better brother who doesn't get jealous of you, who puts your interest before his own, who willingly suffers so that you don't have to. And that's why verse 10 says, it was fitting that God should make Jesus the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Now now that right there in no way implies that there was some kind of moral imperfection in Jesus that required him to go through some suffering first. Now that word perfect could also be translated as complete. And so what this means is that Jesus' is suffering brought about a completion. It brought about a perfection of his work as the founder or author of our salvation. You see, if Jesus was going to be our savior, if he was going to be a good elder brother who protects and who looks out for his little brothers, then he has to become a man. He has to become a man because God can't suffer by virtue of his divine nature. God is impassable. He cannot suffer. And so in order to suffer, in order to perfect or complete our salvation, he took on human nature. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Now, to figure out why Jesus had to suffer, well, that leads us to our next point. This is the second reason why God became a man. He came to die as our deliverer. To die as a deliverer. And that's really the shocking nature of Christmas when you realize that we are, we're going to spend the next few weeks celebrating a birth that has everything to do with a death. We're going to focus on a birth because of the death that it Portends. That's so weird because everyone is born to live, but in this case, Jesus specifically was born to die. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So just as God can't suffer, he also can't die. He's eternal. He's immortal. And that's why the Son of God took on mortality. That's why he partook of a body in order that he could die. Now, why did he have to die? Well, the text says that through his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is The devil. So his death, his suffering and death are all aimed at destroying the devil, who is described here as having the power of death. Now, that needs some clarification. According to the biblical worldview, the devil doesn't have the power of death, as in having the power to choose when you're going to die. He, he's not sovereign over, over who lives and who dies. God is. That's God's job, that's God's prerogative. And so, so please don't picture the devil as some sort of grim reaper type figure who comes and, and who takes your life at, at, at his pleasure. No, when it says that the devil has the power of death, you really need to read on into verse 15, into the next verse. It says, uh, Jesus died to destroy the devil and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so this is saying that we're under the devil's power so long as we fear death, so long as death scares us. The fear of death, it's a real form of bondage. I mean, if you think about it, Because of the fear of death, people have been intimidated and coerced to do all sorts of things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Threaten the man's life, and you can compel him to do just about anything. That's a form of slavery. That's bondage. And it's pervasive. Now, I I know some people might disagree and and claim that they're not afraid of death. They're not afraid of being dead. They're just afraid of dying. I've, I've heard some people say that. And I I get it, the thought of dying is scary. How will it happen? Will it be sudden or will it be prolonged and dragged out? Will will it be painful? Will I suffer much? Will will my loved ones be there? But you know, when someone, someone says, that they're not even afraid of being dead, if they're not afraid of death itself, I think, I think it's, it's because they imagine that on the other side of death is just sheer nothingness. It's just non-existence, and, and, and there's nothing to be afraid of nothingness. But that right there, That right there is a good example of the devil exercising his power related to death. In this case, it's a power to deceive. The devil is a deceiver, and he is using that power to deceive. He will love nothing more than to utterly persuade you that there is no such thing as as an afterlife, that it's all wishful thinking. That there's no judgment to come, that there's no hell, that there's no consequences of eternal punishment. He would love nothing more to con- to, than to convince you that those things are true. But we can't sit idly by. We can't sit idly by as the devil deceives our family and friends, our, our colleagues and classmates. What we need to do is, is to expose that lie and to proclaim the truth of Scripture, to tell those that we care about that, according to Hebrews, chapter nine, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After we die. We will face a holy judge who will hold us accountable for every ill-spoken word, every selfish thought, every hurtful action. And in the context of this heavenly courtroom, the devil wields the power of death over us in another form, in the form of accusation. He uses it now in the form of deception, but on that day, he will use it in the form of accusation. He wields an accusatory power against sinners like us. The devil, if you think about it, is an expert in God's law. He has had thousands of years to study this book. He knows exactly how to use it, how to use it against you. He will mount up all the evidence, all the evidence of your sins and of your disobedience to God's word. And really, he's going to have an open and shut case. God's word says that the wages of sin is death. And you, as a guilty sinner, therefore owe a death. And not just a physical one, but a spiritual death of God-forsakenness. But friends... That's exactly why Jesus came. That's exactly why Jesus came to die. He was was born a man so that he could suffer and die as a man in our place. By paying the wages of sin for us, by experiencing that God-forsakenness for us, in dying the death that we deserve to die, Christ destroyed the devil. That's what's happening here. That's what it says in verse 14. But, you know, that that Greek word there for destroy is probably best translated as rendered powerless. And that makes more sense since Jesus' death didn't actually annihilate the devil, right? He's still around. He's still still allowed to roam this earth for now. But through Jesus' death, The devil was truly rendered powerless in terms of that power he has to accuse us because if our sin debt has been paid for, the devil has nothing left to accuse us with. He's left empty-handed. He's trying to throw sins at us, but all the sins have been covered by the blood and righteousness of Christ. He has nothing left to attack us with. Christ has done it. Christ has died for us. And he didn't stay dead. Death couldn't hold him down. On the third day, he rose from the grave, and all who hope in him have the same hope of, of sharing in his resurrection. Friends, the good news of the gospel this is the good news is that even though all of us, all of us will one day die, Jesus saves us from staying dead. That's the good news. Yeah, we're, we're going to die. But Jesus saves us, saves us from staying dead. Death won't be our final chapter. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is this beautiful imagery of Jesus' resurrection taking the sting out of death. He, he goes on to identify the sting of death as sin. And so in other words, by dying for our sins, by, 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 by rising in victory, Jesus enables us to face a stingless death. A death that, friends, really no no longer has to scare you. It's stingless. Death itself has been transformed for those who are in Christ. What was once our enemy has now been made our servant. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, Paul describes death as the last enemy. It's the last enemy that's going to be subjected To Christ, it's it's gonna serve at His as His footstool. Death is turned into a servant. Death is now our servant, it serves our best interests. Because if we die, we gain. We gain Christ. We get to be with Christ. And so, do you see how Christ delivers you from slavery to the fear of death? How he makes Death into a servant whose whose job is to usher you into into your desired destination. So why would you fear fear your servant? He's, He's your servant. He's there to serve you. He works for you. He is acting in your best interest. Why are we afraid of death if we are in Christ? So friends, ask yourself that. Are you scared of death? It's going to depend on on who you believe is waiting for you at the end of your life. Is it an enemy or your servant? If death is still your enemy, then you rightly should fear it. I'd imagine you'd go kicking and screaming on the way out. But if you take Jesus at his word, if you call out to him for deliverance, then you can share in the hope of one day facing a stingless, powerless death. At the end of this life, you'll you'll meet a servant who is waiting to usher you to a better world, a better land, a better home. And it's for this very reason, to accomplish this for us, God became man. He became a man to suffer as our brother, to die as our deliverer, and lastly, to serve as our high priest. This this point here relates closely to the one before. There's a parallel, if you notice, between verses 14 and verse 17. In verse 14, it says that God became man so that he could die and thereby render, render the devil powerless, and then look in verse 17. 17 says he had To be a man, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the defeat of the devil is tied up here in parallel with Jesus' role as the better high priest who offers the better propitiation for our sins. Now, I know I'm going to need to explain what that word propitiation means, and we're going to do that in a moment, but just first notice with me how verse 17 starts off by saying that Jesus had to do this. He had to be made like his brothers. He had to become a man. There was an oughtness to the incarnation. In other words... He had to become man in order to accomplish the work that he set out to do. Again, this is stressing how it's all fitting, how, how, the, how the whole Christmas story is fitting. It all makes perfect sense. If the Son of God did not become like us in every respect, then he could not function as a priest for us. A priest is someone who has to represent you? A priest represents you before God. He speaks to God on your behalf. A priest intercedes for you. If you recall, back in the Old Testament, the Levites, they were chosen from among the 12 tribes of Israel to serve as priests in order to represent their own brothers before God and to intercede for them. They were, they were qualified To that task because they literally shared flesh and blood with those for whom they are interceding. And that's why, that's exactly why Jesus partook of our flesh and blood. If he never became a man, he could never represent you, he could not help you. And helping you is exactly what he came to do, as it says in verse 16. Verse 16 says that he didn't come to help the human race, he came to help the human race, not the angelic race. It says there, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, this priestly service that the author has in view here is, in particular, this work of propitiation. Now, keep reading, keep reading in verse 17. It says, in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I realize that's not a common word. Uh, That's because it's a religious word, and we don't often use it in everyday language, everyday speech. In the Greek, it was commonly used in pagan religions to refer to a sacrifice by which a God becomes propitious, favorable towards you. So that assumes that the God is already angry or just indifferent towards you, and he needs to be propitiated. If you're familiar with the Iliad, there's a moment in, in, the, uh, in the story where Agamemnon is trying to get to the city of Troy uh, with all of his massive army, but, but the winds aren't favorable, and they're not going anywhere, and so the king tries to propitiate the sea god by the sacrifice of his own daughter. The sacrifice happens, it's accepted, the sea god's wrath is averted, and suddenly the winds appear, and they make it to the shores of Troy. Now, When the Bible says that Jesus was made like us to become our high priest, to make propitiation for our sins, there's an underlying assumption there that God is angry, angry at our sins, that he has a wrath. His wrath is towards our sins. The wrath is real. And at the same time, it is totally consistent with his love, God has wrath, God has love. And I know many people don't think you can harmonize the two, that you can't harmonize God's love and God's wrath. They assume they are mutually exclusive. If he's a loving God, well, then he can't be wrathful, especially towards me. And if he's a wrathful God, well, then he's no longer loving. But just try to imagine with me, try to imagine a God who doesn't get Wrathful. Just, just consider all the horrendous evil in this world. I'm just turn on the news, and you're going to be confronted with sexual predators, with child abusers, mass murderers, and terrorists gunning down or running down innocent victims. I'm glad that God gets angry with evil and sin. I, I couldn't respect Him if He didn't. And I, I truly believe it's love that's compelling Him. Love for the victims. Love for the weak and the helpless. My hope, really, my my only hope rests in the belief that one day God will bring all sinners to perfect justice and he will eradicate all traces of evil from this world. For that, I hope. For that, I give thanks. But then I can't forget that all of that includes me. It includes the evil in a sin in my own heart. I, 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 need the, I need propitiation for my own sins. I need to propitiate God in His wrath. And, and friends, you need to do the same. But no amount of remorse, no amount of contrition, no amount of self-inflicted punishment, no amount of good works is going to be able to do it, is going to be able to propitiate God. No amount is going to satisfy His wrath. Only blood will do. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews nine twenty two. There needs to be blood. There needs to be a sacrifice. But please, friends, please don't get the God of the Bible mixed up and confused with the pagan gods of Greek mythology. Please understand, that our God is so much better. You see, in pagan versions, like in the Iliad, the gods never offer the propitiation. That's the job of the worshiper. The gods, what do they do? They sit back and they wait and they see what you're going to bring in order to appease their wrath. But the God of the Bible, he moved first. He took initiative. And unlike pagan versions, it wasn't an animal, it wasn't a virgin girl, it wasn't even a brave volunteer that was sacrificed. No, no, God the Father willingly sacrificed his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave him to be the propitiation for our sins. And God the Son willingly did his Father's will. He willingly took on the role of the priest and the propitiation. He became the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He had to because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It takes human blood to atone for human sin. To be an effective Savior, the Son of God needed human blood coursing through His veins, which meant that He needed veins. He needed a beating heart. He needed to come in the flesh. He had to be truly human. Otherwise, we still wouldn't have a Savior, and we still, each of us, would be in our own sins, and we would still be under the just wrath of God. This is the mercy of the Incarnation. This is why we celebrate Christmas, to remind ourselves once again how wonderful a savior we have in the Lord Jesus. One who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who has in every respect be been tempted as we are yet without sin. Or as it says in our passage at the end of chapter two in verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. This is why, friends, I believe Jesus is just the perfect Savior. A Superman type hero, a Superman is capable of coming down from the clouds and easily able to rescue us. He can defeat all of our enemies with just a snap of the finger. He can eradicate all evil. But a Superman can't identify with us. He's not one of us. And so he can't substitute his life for us as a propitiatory sacrifice. Only a fellow man can save mankind from the evil that lies within us our true enemy, our sin. And even though though a Superman can pity you, he can't sympathize with you. He hasn't suffered as you suffer. He doesn't know what it's like to be weak in the knees in the face of great agony or great pain. He doesn't know what you're going through. But do you see? Jesus does. Jesus can relate. Jesus understands what you're going through. That's why he became a man. That's what makes him the perfect savior. Fully God so that he can fully rescue you from your sins. Fully man who fully identifies with you and understands what you're going through. He, I would argue, is the most fitting savior. He is the one that you need. Father, reveal this Jesus to each and every one of us right now in this moment. Lord, we we beseech you, please open up our eyes to see the glory of Christ that once again we may fall in love with him, that we will fall back in love with Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our Deliverer, Jesus, our high priest and brother. Oh, Lord, stir up right now our hearts with great affection for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's continue our worship and praise. Please rise.